It's Tuesday, November 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Instagram has changed itself to become a shopping destination for many. But be careful who you're buying from and don't fall victim to ghost stores. You may think you're buying items from independent, small business owners and designers and paying a premium for it, but with some digging, you might be able to find some of those same items for half the price at places like Shein, AliExpress, or Amazon. Terry Wynn, reporter at Vox, joins us for the ghost stores of Instagram. Next, the pandemic was a big inflection point for workers of all industries, but teachers were put in an especially difficult spot dealing with remote learning, back-to-school craziness, and concerns for their own health. Many teachers quit, and others are still thinking about it. Leslie Gray Streeter, author and contributor to the Washington Post magazine, joins us to talk about conversations she had with teachers that left their profession because of the pandemic. Many felt guilt, anger, and heartbreak over their choices. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A lot of consumers don't realize that that's happening until they receive the product and it's lower quality than they've expected. Or in some cases, it comes with packaging or with labels from the original retailer. And so the consumer only realizes this like after the fact. Joining us now is Terry Wynn, reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, you've heard about ghost kitchens before. Right now, we're going to talk about ghost stores on Instagram. Everybody knows how Instagram has kind of transitioned very heavily over into tabs with online stores where you can buy items. You know, a bunch of people just put up their stuff. Uh, You know, you see that cool jacket that you want. uh, It's probably available through Instagram. But what a lot of people are finding out is that you've got to be careful with what you're trying to buy there. A lot of times you can see an item. It might say it's from a, you know, cool boutique, a sustainable source is where they get all the stuff from. And then you do a little bit of digging and you might be able to find it uh, for half price on uh, AliExpress or Amazon, uh, all these other types of things. So, Terry, help us walk through some of uh, what this means, these ghost stores on Instagram. So uh, these stores are not unique to Instagram, but I felt like the ads I was getting for these boutiques were the heaviest on that platform, particularly because I use Instagram the most out of all social media. But they can also be found on, you know, on Facebook, on TikTok, on Depop. These boutiques basically don't solely operate on Instagram, but they use it as a means to direct traffic to their site. But I called them ghost stores because basically these brands claim to be original or to sell kind of exclusive or unique designs. But in reality, they're sourcing from these larger retail marketplaces like Amazon, AliExpress, Shein, which is another popular fast fashion retailer, and just marking up the price significantly. And oftentimes, a lot of consumers don't realize that that's happening until they receive the product and it's lower quality than they've expected. Or in some cases, it comes with packaging or with labels from the original retailer. And so the consumer only realizes this like after the fact. Yeah, I've gone through this a couple of times myself where you see a cool item there, you go through and you say, man, this is so expensive. Then you kind of do some digging around and you find it a couple other places. You included a bunch of pictures in your article, you know, like a sweater shirt type thing is 90 bucks on one website. You search a little more and you can find it for $26, you know, so the markup is pretty high on some of these things. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how um, a lot of these drop shipping brands are usually they're run by very few people because they don't even store the merchandise. But a few kind of uh, key signs, as I wrote in my article, is that they have a very vague brand story. There's usually no description as to who their founders are, kind of their mission. Um, It's all very vague. And pretty much the goal is to get you to sell the product. And I think a lot of these brands have gotten savvier over time. I wrote about this one particularly notorious Instagram brand called Cider, which claims to be, you know, socially minded and produces clothes in small batches. But if you just do a little bit more digging, you find that that's really not the case. They're just kind of this company from China that's like selling things and producing them in mass. And that's really the point of this story. It's kind of that cautionary tale to be wary of what you're finding out there and to do a little bit of extra research maybe before you go ahead and and buy that stuff. It's so easy to get these virtual storefronts that you can call them, right, to set them up and Mm -hmm. start selling things. But yeah, you don't know where the stuff is coming from. And for a lot of people, you know, they've we've heard the stories, right? millennials, Gen Z people, they are a little more socially conscious. They want to put some good faith behind a brand that they can trust and and trust that they're doing things the right way. And this kind of just flies in the face of all that. Yeah. And I also think this is occurring at a time where a lot of younger consumers, as you mentioned, millennials and Gen Z, really want to support small businesses. They don't have as much of brand loyalty to kind of these old storied brands. Like I don't shop at Nordstrom or Macy's. Like I would much rather buy something like cute from like an online retailer. And kind of these drop shipping companies have identified that and really capitalized on this sort of like declining loyalty with a brand that they're familiar with. And while there are, you know, plenty of really reputable sellers that use Instagram to like reach new audiences, it's unfortunate that the platform has also become pretty to a lot of people just using it to turn a quick buck. And, you know, you make the point in the article, too, none of this is illegal. You know, this has been Mm -hmm. done for so long in many different forms. It's really on you, on the consumer, not to get duped. I mean, you have to you have to do that due diligence, right? And it also feels like it's much, it feels much more, I think people have thrown around the word scam. It feels much more scammy when you're buying something online versus when you're in a brick and mortar store. Because we know that a lot of retailers have done this. Like they source from the same place and maybe one store that has, you know, that has higher prices just upmarks it compared to another store that also sources from the same place. But it feels much more blatant when you can just, you know, reverse image search and find the exact same product on AliExpress. Like, I feel that, yeah. that that's much more damning for the consumer. But unfortunately, yeah, and it, it's unfortunate as well that I mentioned that, you know, these brands have gotten so good at Instagram marketing that they're sending stuff to celebrities or like really popular influencers who are kind of like, you know, adding to their clout. Right. And some so some tips for consumers out there, because you did mention the reverse image search. That's a, a pretty interesting way to go and look to see where else that particular item might be marketed or sold. Yeah, so um, I, I would definitely say if they know how to reverse image search, that's kind of great. Um, or you can just go on just search up reviews, like actual reviews, either whether it be from like Reddit or from like the Better Business Bureau. I think there are some drop shipper, drop shipping brands where people have said, you know, it takes four to six weeks for something to arrive. And that's usually a great indicator that, oh, this brand isn't located in the U.S. or they're not shipping from the U.S., which is why it's taking like weeks to a month for something to get there. So I think those are kind of like two key identifying factors that consumers can rely on. 
Terry Wynn, reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stresses trying to figure out how to meet the emotional needs of these kids beforehand. And she said she didn't return in part because she knew that she would be so distracted by trying to then address the trauma that was piled on from COVID. Joining us now is Leslie Gray Streeter, journalist, author, and contributor to the Washington Post magazine. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thank you for having me. We've been hearing a lot about the great resignation and, you know, people leaving their jobs for something better, just maybe not feeling like they're appreciated. Everything really changed with the pandemic. For this story, we wanted to focus on teachers. And, you know, we've been hearing that a lot of teachers obviously left their jobs. A lot of them are still thinking about possibly leaving. I guess we saw one in four American teachers reported considering leaving their jobs by the end of the last academic year. And replacing teachers is not so uh, easily done. So for your latest story, you spoke to seven former teachers kind of explaining why they left, what drove them to do it, and uh, kind of what they're doing after that as well. So, uh, Leslie, help us walk through some of this. What were teachers saying about uh, the conditions of the classroom last year? Well, I think that for like so many people in other um, professions who participated in the Great Resignation, um, there were already issues beforehand. Like maybe there wasn't enough payment or there wasn't enough flexibility even before COVID. And COVID exacerbated a lot of those conditions. And people were like, is it worth it for me to return, even if it, you know, when it made things, things were made even worse. And I think that for so many of the teachers that I spoke to, that was the case, whether it was feeling like, you know, we've always talked about teachers being underpaid um, or being expected to spend their own money on supplies or to act as, you know, a combination social workers and parents and suppliers of decor, all of it, you know, and I think that so much of that was made worse when you also, there's no separation for so many teachers who were teaching remotely because they might have their own kids and their own families and their own things to do. And there was no separation. Uh, the woman I spoke to at the beginning of the story, Lene Higgins, spoke about that, about she's trying to parent her toddler literally find time to go to the bathroom and she's monitoring a bunch of middle schoolers and added to everything else she's trying to do. It just was not, it was, she was suicidal. She said she was absolutely depressed. And for other teachers, for instance, a teacher named Peggy who talked about how she already had stresses trying to figure out how to meet the emotional needs of these kids beforehand. And she said she didn't return in part because she knew that she would be so distracted by trying to then address the trauma that was piled on from COVID, which was tacked on to the previous trauma they already had. And she goes, I I wouldn't be able to concentrate on academics because I'd be trying to figure out what was, how could I help this kid who's spiraling like the rest of us were. So it just was things that piled on. Yeah, the first teacher that you mentioned, uh, you know, you, you mentioned she had a toddler, she had to take a bathroom break. You know, she found it so stressful that she had to say, okay, three-minute break for everybody just so she could run and, and, do, and do something real quick. And obviously, you're in a Zoom session, the kids are at home. Now they're just kind of sitting there and, and you, know, she, you know, it all bears down. I think someone you spoke to um, said it best, right? And, and you mentioned all those things that teachers do that we know that they do, right? Social worker, mm-hmm. surrogate parents, all that. Teachers were already wearing so many hats. The pandemic just added more hats to that equation. And it became really, really tough. 
so tell me uh, a little bit about so, the conversations that you had with some of the teachers, because one of the things that popped up a lot was guilt. They felt guilty yeah. that they were leaving the profession, that they, you know, something that they worked a lot to get to, something that they always had wanted to be for a variety of reasons, but they felt guilt and heartbreak having to leave it, like they were leaving their career and leaving their responsibilities to the children. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you know any teachers, and I think you know most of us, we had teachers, and we probably know some now in our adult lives, they go into education not for the money, not for the status or the clout. They go into it because it's a calling to them. It is something that they feel they are providing as a service to their communities and to the future leaders and to humanity. And they go into this and some of it, you know, starts when they're young and they might not know as much, but the one, particularly the career teachers who've stuck around for a while, they did this because they love it. And there is a real feeling of guilt. It's not like leaving other jobs where you go, this was just a job to me. They take these things very seriously. Every single teacher I spoke to, no matter what part they were in, what stage they were in their career, said to me, I went into this because I loved it. I went into this because I felt I was supposed to do this. And so thinking of yourself as a teacher, like, you know, myself as a journalist, I've always thought of myself as a journalist, capital J, like it was my calling, like I had to do this. And then you learn maybe that's not it, or maybe you don't have to stick with that enough to where you are stressed or suicidal or just not thinking that you can get the job done. Obviously, COVID loomed large and a lot of these decisions and, you know, impacted it in many different ways. Some of the teachers even felt anger, you know, at this current situation, whether it be mask policies, whether it be crazy school board meetings that we know we saw. You know, a lot of them felt like they were bargaining chips when parents were saying, hey, we got to send the kids back to school. But the teachers had a fear for their own health as well. And you profiled a couple of teachers. I think there was two that had some type of severe asthma. And, you know, for them going possibly getting a respiratory disease, that's pretty scary. And there's one who was pregnant right, who exactly. had um, suffered a miscarriage earlier and was identified by her doctors in writing that she was recommended to teach remotely and she was denied. Most of us, I know I did, felt some trepidation about how do I do my job in a way that protects me and my family and that kind of thing. And when that one teacher who had already felt that she was not protected as a Floridian teacher after what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, even though she was like hours away from there, she felt that vulnerability and it's in her PTSD. So then she's like, are you going to take care of us with gun laws, with mask laws, with being able to stay remote? What are you going to do? And she didn't feel they were doing, she didn't feel they were doing enough. So she left. And once again, she felt angry. The other teacher I interviewed in Florida, which is where I lived at the beginning of the pandemic and had a school, a child in Palm Beach County schools, which we left and still, you know, has grappled with mass mandates and that kind of thing. The teacher said, you know, that she was watching these parents on these Facebook pages. She was lurking and going, I'm going to send my kid to school anyway, even if they get COVID. I mean, how how could you feel about that? Yeah, and particularly in Florida, you know, the Florida Education Association said that there was a 9,000 shortage of classroom and staff shortages there. So uh, I guess that was from the month of August, but there was 9,000 people more that they could have uh, needed to to help with all of that stuff. So definitely a tough situation there. And then one of the other things that came up, too, with the, the teachers that you spoke to personal life outside of the classroom, which is so important. And when you're working so many hours throughout the Zoom, you know, can't even take a break for the restroom, you know, then you have to grade, then you have to work on all this stuff. You know, even that personal life aspect of it, you know, when you're living and working all from home, you know, for a lot of people, that was a big shift. And, and that was also hard to adjust to. 
Absolutely. There was a young man that I spoke to. He was the only male teacher that I spoke to. And I got to tell you, a lot of people probably wanted to contribute to the story, but you know, you don't necessarily, if you're still working there, or if you want to maybe go back, you're not necessarily going to want to go on record. So I understood that this was a brave thing. A lot of the teachers did. But right. uh, Stephen these, Lane, these, said, are, you know, these are all teachers that have have left the profession have left. since. Yeah, have left exactly. Um, although he said maybe I'll go back one day, but you know he was a young man. He is a young man who's in his thirties who said he didn't realize how much he wasn't home until he was home teaching and went, wait a minute, I'm never here. <laughs> it's because my, he built his life around teaching. It's like the uh, line from landslide. Yeah. Because I built built my life around you, you know, and it was like I built my life around teaching, and now I have to change that. What are, What are these teachers doing now after they've left the profession? I know some feel they're in a better place and a new job. Some others have said they haven't necessarily settled yet; they don't know what they're doing. But most of them, I think, all of them feel happier with the situation, at least. They feel happier. If not, I mean, the, the ones, a couple, like the woman from uh, Palm Beach County, who said, "Listen." I wasn't going to retire for another couple of years and I'm, I'm kind of angry. I felt like I was forced to do that, forced to do this, but there is a sense of relief certainly with a lot of them. Uh, Lene Higgins, the first teacher I spoke to in the beginning of the story is writing a lot and she's running a business. She has a game that she started a board game with her husband. So she's doing that. Um, a couple people like Stephen Lane that I mentioned is now writing curriculum for a private company. So he's still using his education um, background. There's a woman from California who's now in Columbia at a project that is teaching teachers and training teachers how to teach from a culturally sensitive social justice perspective um, with its mind on disparities. And that's why she left, because she felt that she always felt that there were these inequities and disparities in teaching and that it was, you know, three days after her kids went back to school, they had a subsidized test. And it's like, welcome back to this place you haven't been for a year and a half. Here's a test that's going to determine how you do for the next year. It's right. like, that's, it's enough. It's enough. So um, I will also say, like I said, so many of these teachers, every single one of these teachers cares. Like they said, they care so deeply. And they really want people to understand that this was not a decision that was made lightly. You know, this is not a decision that they went, oh, live and learn what's the next big adventure? It was something that was some of them held on to the last week before, right. you know, the school start school district started until they had, they would have until a certain time make a decision. They went it to the very last day because they just wanted to make sure that they were making the right decision. And they ultimately all said they knew they made the right decision. You know, and, and to your point, you know, for the majority of teachers, right, you get into it because you do deeply care. We, as you mentioned, we all know a teacher or had ha have had a teacher that made an impact on us. And it was because they made those extra steps to help you learn, help take care of you, all of that. And it was so tough throughout the pandemic, like it was for many people in many industries, but we rely so much on teachers. Uh, as you mentioned, it just takes the toll on the person. And, you know, it's pretty unfortunate. So obviously we hope there's a lot of discussions on improving things in the classroom. Hopefully we get there. But uh, for now, it seems very emblematic of what a lot of teachers were going through throughout that whole thing. Leslie Gray Streeter, journalist, author, and contributor to the Washington Post magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.